Hello, everyone. The power of a moment of silence is what we shall be speaking about. Do you ever feel that in this uh, increasingly fast-paced society that we live in, with information inundating us from all different directions, do you ever feel overwhelmed and uh, lost, even confused? It's hard not to feel that way when um, we live in a highly technological society and um, things are literally moving at dizzying pace and dizzying speeds. And to find your bearings in that type of uh, environment it can be extremely difficult. It's called overload. It's called the overload and the uh, overstimulation of our senses. There are studies that even show that one of the key consequences triggered by overload and overstimulation is stress and anxiety. And the reason is very obvious, because a human being, by nature, not by will, but by nature, requires an element of what we call calm, peace. When you walk into a room and everybody's yelling, and everybody, everyone gets somewhat disoriented, disconcerted. Unless you've grown up with so much toxic yelling that it becomes your comfort zone. But you look at, look at children. Someone yells suddenly, you get jolted. You know, we get scared even, frightened. Because it's not the natural environment. Just like fish, natural environment is being in water. A human being, for whatever reason, and we'll discuss this more at length, their natural environment is a certain element of calm, serenity, and tranquility. Yes, there are times that we are in the middle of uh, the action, the roller coaster, the merry-go-rounds, but that's part of the adventure and the journey. But if you only have that, it can be extremely unsettling because the natural environment is a person. For example, we all need to go to sleep. Sleep is best when it's calm sleep. When you go into sleep with anxiety and stress, and your sleep is very restless sleep. You don't feel rested. Your whole day you can be edgy, and so on. So it's clear as a given, we may not know the exact reasons for it, but I believe after this class you will know, that it's a given that a human being requires an element of rest. Now in truth, if you look at this, you'll see this consistently with, uh, with anything. You'll find even when machines are built, you'll say, don't let the machine run 24-7, or else it'll burn out. Give it even a machine, and a machine doesn't have a soul or a heart, and definitely human beings. And again, the best proof of it, look at children when they're in an environment where people are yelling and screaming, when there's this, there's this type of tension in the air. And the same with an adult. You come into a party and people, the hosts, are yelling at each other, and it's just very uncomfortable. We don't like it. And he said very unsettling because it's not consistent with the inner tranquility and serenity that the human being is like. So now imagine here we're inundated by all that's going on in life, the rush hours of our lives. Can we find any respite? And how do we deal with it? Is the only way, like some people say enough is enough and they just cut themselves off from modern, the modern world, live a life, an ascetic life, a more quiet and a more peaceful life? Is that the only solution? Or can you find a way to experience that inner calm, even amidst the turbulence and the tumultuousness 
of modern life. And it is tumultuous. It may be very beneficial for many because you really have access to anything, anywhere, anytime. But what it's lacking is it undermines that common security that every human being deserves and needs for their own peace of mind and their peace of heart for be able to really function properly. So this is part of what we'll be talking about. How we achieve that type of place, a place of inner calm, inner peace in amidst turbulence. But I want to draw it an expanded issue far more than that. It comes down to also in general in our lives, beyond the hyperstimulation of events that are going on around us, there's also an inner turmoil that we all struggle with. You know, an inner turmoil where people may not know what really brings happiness. Um, so we experiment and we try out different things. We're constantly looking for a high, for some adventure, for some exhilarating experience that gives us some sense of uh, excitement. Very often these things that we look for are not necessarily uh, constructive. They can be very destructive. They can also be very instant gratification. What, what that creates is that you're always looking for the next fix because it's so temporary. And that would create another level of tumultuousness and restlessness because you're always wondering, where am I going to get my next fix from? And even when you're already experiencing the sugar high, you're already looking for the next sugar. So how, how that can either contribute to inner peace. I would submit that so much of our mo- the maladies of our modern age are so connected with these factors. Because in a certain way, even, even if we deserve, and we do deserve, to have that inner sense of peace, the life itself takes control and we become a victim of life's circumstances. And the, the, the pursuit, the pursuit for, for money and security, the pursuit for happiness and joy, the pursuit for companionship and intimacy, and all that can be severely compromised when you're dealing in a world that's very hard to find peace when you're missing a war zone, so to speak, with all these forces barraging us and inundating us from every possible direction. You know, look, for example, just my classic example is always think of children in their young age. A child needs the nine months it's in its mother's womb before it enters into the hostile world. Imagine we were thrust into the world from the moment we were conceived. We wouldn't have, though, that the comforts that you need. You need to have that nest, the hearth, the womb, that you're completely submerged in the embryonic fluids that give you that type of security before you go out into a world with confidence and self-esteem. The same thing the early stages of our lives. Our impressionable years, a child is meant to be nurtured in the hearth, in the home, healthy parents, healthy environments that build confidence. Just to use it as an example, when you train soldiers, for instance, to go to, to ultimately be able to fight battles, you can't begin with actually having a real battle. You can't train somebody in the middle of the storm. You have to have an environment and a, and a place where there's relative peace. And then you do training exercises, simulations. But if they're really under the gun of life and death, it's very hard to train anybody when there's a gun pointed at your head or there's danger around. So all 
growth comes from first establishing in a peaceful setting, training someone for that, after having to then go out and deal with the real challenges. Once you do that, when a person's trained, then you can actually face a true battle and you're already prepared with the presence of mind, with the focus and the clarity. You can't build things in the middle of a storm, basically. You need calm. In a calm environment, you can prepare for a storm, and then when the storm comes, you have the navigational tools. So essentially, childhood that is um, in a healthy environment is that type of training stage. If, tragically, a a child's life is aborted, what I mean by that, that the childhood and the nurturing home in some way is severed, either due to uh, a breakup in the marriage, either due to abuse, either due to absenteeism, all the different factors, and a child suddenly, its security blankets are stripped from it, and the child no longer has that comfort, knowing I'm coming home from school, and I know I have a loving mother and father waiting for me. I know I have a warm meal. I know I have a warm bed. I know I have people who love me, who will be there for me, who will protect me. When a child loses that, one of the worst possible tragedies. Why? Because the child has not yet even developed the skills to be able to do it on its own. That would be like a a bird thrown out of a nest prematurely. Everyone needs their nest. And that builds the security that when you're thrown into the turbulent and noisy and pressured world, you have tools and skills to deal with it, to navigate through it. So the question is, how do you build these tools as well as understanding the importance of what these tools serve, I, I should actually reverse it, not how you build the tools first, is what is it that makes us need this type of state of security? Why can't we just uh, deal with the challenges head on? Why do we need to, why, 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 what is it about our psyches and our souls that needs inner peace and serenity? And then how do we build the tools to satisfy that need? which of course is the, you could say the springboard for all success, is that you know you have that inner security, that inner confidence. And all this will lead us to the discussion of moment of silence. But there's yet another challenge I want to address before we get into the so-called answer and offering the life skills and techniques and methodologies. Let's talk about some more challenges that we face. You know, recently, we all remember just a month ago, tragic shootings of 17 innocent students gunned down by a murderer. And uh, still in the news, the, the gatherings of students today and other days in trying to figure out solutions to protect our, our children. Because everyone is, every murder is horrible. Every murder of innocent, innocent people is horrible, whether it's at a mall or it's at a cafe, or it's a suicide bombing or terrorist attack. But especially when it happens in those zones that we consider to be the places that houses of study where children go, and they're not yet thrust in the world. They're not on the war zone. They're not on the front. They're not at war. This is the place, schools were always the place that we always protected. Schools, hospitals, places of worship. So when you see horrendous things happening there, it always shakes us even more because then who, who is off limits? What's off limits if not a school? Now, this is, of course, not the first shooting. There have been many, and it's considered to be already an epidemic by some. 
especially in our modern times. I'm not going to go into the statistics of it. It's not, that's not the point of the discussion. And everybody's offering all kinds of analysis and solutions. Some talk about gun control. Some talk about mental illness. Some talk about creating, uh, there shouldn't be, shouldn't be gun-free zones and creating, there should be enough protection, meaning security guards or teachers or people who are trained, even though here was a colossal failure that even people who were hired to be security guards ended up being afraid to enter and not protecting these innocent people. Everyone has these solutions. At best, all these solutions are dealing with symptoms, not with causes, because what you can do is prevent, just like after the first attacks on airplanes and hijackings that developed the entire security system at airports. I remember a day when airports didn't have such security systems the way they are today. Why was it? Because airport, airplanes are a very vulnerable place to be. And they started the screenings to the point where, thank God, it's, it's a rare occasion that an airplane is, uh, is attacked. I mean, 9-11, of course, there was a breach, and so new precautions were taken. But the point is, all this is symptoms. It doesn't stop a terrorist from being a terrorist. It stops a terrorist from pulling off their heinous plans and, and, uh, and goals. But when you get to the root of issues, it's always more complicated. <coughs> Just like I've talked many times about the whole confrontation with the Muslim extremist world and terrorism, there's dealing with the symptoms, there's dealing with the roots. Now, I'm not suggesting you don't deal with symptoms. Just like, God forbid, when someone has a cut and is bleeding, obviously the first thing you do is stop the bleeding. Band-aid. Or whatever it is that takes to stop the bleeding. But if it continues bleeding, and it continues opening up the wound, the wound continues to opening up, you better get to the root of it. So symptoms are good for the short term, and especially for protection. So obviously, by all means, everything that's possible to protect children from a school in schools, from any type of attacks, you do. You do whatever it takes. However, there's the root of the issue. And that, you hear far less people talking about it. Maybe it's not because it's, maybe because it's not conducive to short talking points, a short attention span of what news has become entertainment, a version of entertainment, a version of titillation, a version of even talking about school violence. You know, dealing with the roots is a much longer discussion, a more serious one. And most people don't have patience. They have five minutes. So tell me what it is. So gun control and other things seem to be a much easier culprit to address. Roots deal with real, real life. So I've mentioned this a number of times after the Columbine, the Columbine massacre, which was also students turning on their fellow students. Um, and there, there was no mental illness involved. It was just thr- a thrill, and they ended up killing themselves as well. So I remember then at the time I was traveling to Australia. I know some of you may wonder what does it have to do with the, what I was talking before about um, the, the turbulence of life, but you'll see in a few minutes the connection. So I remember then I was traveling to Sydney. I was in Sydney, Australia for a lecture tour. And one of the places I spoke was a Friday morning at a Moriah, is a big Jewish school there, thousands of kids. And uh, they had a session with uh, maybe... Good, yeah, it was a good room of maybe 150, 200 young boys and girls. Young, I say young, 14 to 17 to 18. And it was volunteer. People came. It wasn't mandatory. They came. They wanted to hear me speak. And I spoke about it. I asked a question to them. I posed a provocative question. Could something that happened in Columbine happen here in Sydney? 
with my belief and hope that they would say no, because it's a Jewish school, we're in Australia, this is not America with guns and violence, all the other, you know, the usual, uh, usual explanations. And to my surprise, no. The most of the students said, yes, it could happen here. So once I heard that, I said, so what do you think is the reason? And, you know, everybody started weighing in. The students, this one said this, some things were nonsensical, some a little more intelligent, insightful. But just to, uh, long, short, long story short, what I was leading to, I said was, why is it that way? And ultimately, and this is what the students resonated with them, was the question is the sanctity of life. As life becomes less sacred and more negligible, you know, 7 billion people on this planet. Yeah, but the big thing. If we're all insignificant, so life is not sacred, what do you think? That doesn't cause murder, but that causes the possibility for people to not value life that much. So true, mental illness can be a factor, even though the statistics show that mentally ill people usually don't murder others and don't scheme like this and don't do these things. And this causes grievances and all kinds of reasons that people. But if you want a preemptive measure, again, not alone, with all the other measures as well, with the symptomatic Resolutions, you have to get to the root. What is the, value, the level of value of life in the average young man and woman in our Western society? Has anyone, anyone made such studies? And I'm surprised that nobody even considers talking about that. Because you could rest assured that if the value of life is less, the lower it goes, the more possible for a person to, God forbid, even consider th- killing. Some people are not capable of killing a fly. Some people are not capable even of raising a gun no matter how angry they are, no matter how grieved they are, no matter how, how bitter they are. Why? Because they don't, they don't think that way. They think of life in a certain way. Do you hear of one Jew after the Holocaust, after what was done in the most bestial, bestial way, the dehumanization of Jews besides their extermination, should decide, you know what, I want to kill all the Germans and started going on a shooting rampage in Berlin or in Munich, or in Frankfurt, or in the other places where the, where the Germans reigned and the other countries. Did anyone start, decide to become suicide bombers? Why? Not because we're less angry, because the Jews were less angry at what happened. They lost entire families, innocent children. Our blood boils when you hear the story. It's because by them life is sacred, and they just don't consider that. That's not what you do. The way you, your revenge is by building families, your revenge is by building and perpetuating your life. This doesn't mean you're not angry. But people who value life in the deepest possible way, for them taking life is not that easy. So I'm not going to say that this alone is a solution. But without addressing this, you're really not even addressing the attitudes that people have. And that's critical. What is the attitude? Yes, when you, and then when you see violence on television and, on, in, and, and in film... And, and media, and you see how easily people shoot and kill people. You know, you see this all the time. It all adds to a, a, deep, a uh, diminishment, a, what's the word I want to use, a desanctification, a devaluation of the sanctity and the absolute value of life. And I'll put, take it a step further. People, you ask the people, how va- not only how valuable life is, how valuable is your life? It's not just you don't value other lives. How valuable, how indispensable do you think you are? If you're not very indispensable in your eyes, what do you think is going to be the attitude? Then some other factors come into play. Life, 
is not that indispensable. And that leads me to back to what is going on in our schools. What are we teaching our children? Are we teaching them about the sanctity of life? Are we teaching them about the sanctity of your, of your life, of other people's lives, of the purpose of life? So many say, oh, you can't even use that word. Schools are a place where you can't bring in the word sanctity. You can't bring in the word value. But, the, but in the American Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, it says all men are created equal, and by that virtue are endowed with inalienable rights. These are sacred rights. This is what's the basis of this country. Our children taught this. And I say again for the third or fourth time, I'm not suggesting because they don't know this, that's what causes all the problems, but it's definitely a major preemptive measure if a person has that type of value. And they look at themselves and they look at others. Now, I think all na- naturally we all feel that way. Everybody feels, look, you see the outcry. You see how children are crying over their friends that they lost, the brother, boys and girls that were lost. And some of them were closely almost killed as well. So obviously there's an outrage. There's definitely instinctively that value. But it has to be articulated. And this leads me back to the same moment of silence, which as we'll soon see, is a solution to many, many issues and problems in our society. So it's true that what I said earlier about the din and the noise and all the inundating forces that overstimulate our senses and create a certain sense of disorientation. And what I'm talking about now is the issue of sanctity of life may not seem connected, but they're very much connected. Because it all comes down to what is the core of who you are. And this is single, the single most important ingredient, single most important message we should be teaching our children. More than mathematics and science and art and geography and history and literature and political science and liberal arts, physical sciences, the social sciences and political sciences, more than everything is the root, the foundation of it all. And what is the foundation of all? What are you going to do with all these sciences? That's a good tool chest. But what do you use the tool chest for? What is the purpose and calling of a person's life? And what is life itself? So that brings me all back to this concept of the moment of silence, which the expression itself you're probably familiar with. It's one of the things that has been advocated by a number of people, including my own teacher and mentor, the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, as being something that should be instituted in all schools. That in the morning, before the studies begin, the children should be given a moment of silence without imposing upon them what they should be thinking or meditating or a moment of silence. The goal of it is to say before we even begin studying, before we do everything, we know that there is a foundation to our lives, the sanctity of life, the purpose of life. And yes, think about God. Think about that there's an ear that hears and an eye that sees, that there's an accountability to a higher force in your life. But due to the factors of separation of church and state, you can't impose it on anyone. But by instituting it and children asking, so what should I do in this moment of silence? To meditate upon something that is greater and more transcendent than the here and now. You know, the word God is dirty for some people. I've mentioned many times, David Yitzhak Baditchev's great line where he said to the self-proclaimed atheist, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. You know, the concept of people of God that have a juvenile, childish version of a God sitting on a throne in heaven with a, with a long white beard striking us with lightning when we misbehave. But there's a far more sophisticated, and this is the God that I introduce, is the one that is 
a transcendent force, a higher force that our lives are not just about material success and our lives are not just about narcissistic pleasure and it's not just about the here and now and it's not just about materialism. That there's a deeper purpose and a deeper focus and there's a calling that your soul and my soul and every individual person on the seven billion people on this planet and, and counting has an individual indispensable purpose and it's a sacred purpose. Sacred. Sacred means nobody can take it away from you because no one gave it to you. It's something that comes from a greater place. And yes, we were sent here to this world. We didn't just pop out of our mother's wombs. We didn't just fall into the world by accident. You were sent here on a calling and a mission. Imagine teaching our children this, this concept. All this is captured in a moment of silence. But the interesting thing, silence has a certain power because silence is the element where you just shut down all the noises and like focus on what's going on inside of your inner core. When you don't have that inner core, what happens? Whatever's happening in your life is going to take control. If a person has no direction, let's say one day you decide, I'm going for a walk down Fifth Avenue, down Broadway. I'm just talking, I'm in New York. It could be any street. You can fill in the blanks, name the street. You take a stroll, you're bored, you have nothing to do. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is someone else is going to stimulate you. You're not stimulating from within. Because you don't have no clue where you're going. You're going down the street. Oh, that's a beautiful showcase in the window. I'm going into the store. You go in. Maybe they even convince you to buy something. You move down, stroll next door. Another stimulation. So when you don't have a core, inner core that's driving you, what do you think is going to happen? You'll be influenced by everything that comes your way. Our senses are very sensitive. And they're stimulated. Sensory stimulation. Things we see. Look at the power of sight. You go on the web, you, you, you browse on the web, okay? How often do you get distracted? You suddenly say, oh, that's a nice thing. I'll click on it. And suddenly you're there, and then you click on another, click, click, click. I'm not even talking about going to inappropriate places. The thing you were focusing on, you completely lost focus. Why? Because visual stimulation is very seductive. And it gets you. You know, a, an image, a beautiful image. Something that so-called uh, so uh, sparks your imagination. And then there you go, and then you say, why am I not focused? Because our senses take over. Then the next thing, you hear something. Okay, that could be a second type of stimulation. Then you taste something. You touch something. And you smell something. These are the five senses. And they're very powerful. So if you don't have your focus for the moment, what do you think is going to happen? The senses take over. And whatever comes your way, comes your way. Which is why there's a beautiful Torah, beautiful concept is the Sifse Kayan was a great commentator on the, on the Bible and the Torah. A chapter, not this week's chapter, a chapter later in Deuteronomy, where it says you shall establish judges and, and authorities and police at your gates. You shall establish in your, in your municipalities, or literally your gates, judges and police. Shaitan law enforcers. And he explains, what is, this, what is this in your gates? He says, the gates are the seven gates in every human being. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and a mouth. These are your seven gates. <clears throat> Everything that enters into your life is either through your eyes, outside stimulation, or through your ears, or through your smell, or through your mouth. Why do you have to establish judges? You need discretion. 
Not everything out there belongs inside of you. Not everything you see, doesn't, you should protect yourself. Not everything that's out there you have, to, you have to look at. Not everything that is said you have to listen to. Someone comes to you and starts sharing, sharing gossip, sharing just bad-mouthing someone. Is that, so you have to listen to that? You need gates in your ears. Someone's you something that you suddenly see. Everything you see, everything out there is something for you to look at. Who says? And the same thing with the other senses. So an intelligent person knows that they want to have control over their lives. I'm focused on what I need to focus, my calling and my mission. And I take into, my, into the gates that which belongs to me, that which helps me fulfill my calling. And that which doesn't help me doesn't need to be in the, exactly like gates in a walled city. What are the point of the gates? The walled city makes sure the city is protected from enemies, from foreign and alien forces. But you need gates. Why? Because you need to get in and out. You can't be completely sealed off. So there's gatekeepers, and these gatekeepers say, okay, they check, this belongs here, this belongs inside your city. In here, your body is a small city. And this doesn't belong. This is how a responsible, disciplined, and a healthy person behaves. So there's a coming in and out, but it's all based on a certain amount of discretion a certain amount of, he has gatekeepers that observe, that judge, and determine what belongs, discretion, and two, that enforce that discretion. Because many times, you can have the discretion, but strength, you need that willpower, and you need the, the execution to make sure that even though your mind tells you it doesn't belong inside of you, you also really enforce that. So going back to our point here is, that's all as long as you have that inner core. So it's like you know what my calling is, and now I'm going to go find the resources for it. Where all mistakes happen is I don't have a call. Like, you know, any, any, you go to any business, for example, or any entity, and they hire a consultant to see whether we're doing things efficiently. The first question is asked, what's your objective? What's your mission? Then you go see, are you doing, are you, are you, are you, are the activities that you're involved in and the staff are involved in fulfilling your mission or not? You start to say, one second, here's five or three, a few activities they don't even belong to this company. Why are you doing it? Oh, someone thought of an idea and they ended up doing it. Why? So everything begins with a, a, a focus. It's like you can't build a circle if you don't have a hub, if you don't have a center, a solid center. So that is exactly the purpose of a moment of silence. Because in the middle, as I said before, you can't build focus when there's so much noise. When there's a lot of noise, a lot of clutter, a lot of turbulence, and, uh, and static, very, very hard to focus. That is why, like I said earlier with the child, we all need a moment or a few moments where we have quiet, we shut everything off, and we say, okay, let me focus now. What do we need to do? Then, when you're empowered that way, then you can enter the world of noise, and you can turn on Google or your other million of other different places where information is streamed to you, and say, okay, now I'm going to figure out which information I need for my purpose and which I don't need. If you don't have that, you are going to be basically a victim, or if you wish, a product of circumstances. What will control your attention will be whatever comes your way, and it's very easy to get you to distract you because you don't have anything that's really an anchor. You know, imagine someone going on a ship, and there's no destination. So what are you going to do? You can go in circles, you can go back and forth, you can just be lost at sea. 
There's no destination. There's no objective. There's no point of a point of where you want to reach. No goal. So what happens with a life without a goal, without an objective? So, you know, every day, wherever the wind takes you. Wind goes here. Okay, here's fine. Here's fine. The, the big sad part is that most people don't think that's a problem, what I just described. I know people have told me, what's wrong with that? I have the luxury. I don't really care where I'm going, as long as I'm having fun. You know, I'm not here to disturb anybody's fun. If they're having fun, they say, God bless you. But there's going to be a point where life is going to take over, and then things are not so fun. And that's when a storm strikes, <coughs> and when there's a loss. Or there's a transition in life. You lose a job, your age, illness, loss, death. Everybody's going to go. Life is not a, uh, a coast, a plateau. Life is constantly with twists and turns. So many people say, you know what, I'll worry about it then when doing that. And I understand who wants to plan ahead because of pain, because of loss. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying those moments is forces you to then think and say, one second, where am I going here? Now, if a person says, all I need is knowing my goal is to make a certain amount of money in my life, and that's their entire goal, and they really don't care about anything else, it's probably hard to convince a person like that they should care about anything else. And, you know, you have to choose your battles. I probably would not go and invest much there because that person is convinced that's what they want to do. They think that's a, a goal that's good enough. But is it good enough to bring up healthy children? Is it good enough to have healthy relationships, making a certain amount of money? You show me somebody with amount of money that, that money helped them build healthy psychological and emotional relationships. You could have money and have healthy relationships. You could have no money and have healthy relationships. One has nothing to do with the next. So, but if you're seeking a healthy life, a productive life, a life where love flourishes and that people are not driven by fear and by insecurity and therefore don't escape into all kinds of different crutches and addictions and habits to numb or to relieve their pain and you're really looking for that healthy life there is no other way but to find that quiet center and that's where that moment of silence comes in we call it some from of us and you talk in the jewish traditional world you could say is the moment you say moda'ani so i know it's not silent moda'ani is a prayer with words but its message is essentially a very quiet one. Saying, I acknowledge to you for returning my soul to me. What is a soul? A soul is not very visible. A soul is also not very loud. As a matter of fact, in the book of, 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 um, of Kings, where it talks about Elijah the prophet, and he's awaiting God's arrival. So it says, Ruach Hashem First came a wind. And he thought God was in the wind. He said, no, not in the wind. God is not in the wind. Then came rash, thunder, loud sounds. And he thought God is in the thunder. No, it's not in the thunder. Then came a great fire, lightning, fire. God's in the fire. No, he's not in the fire. So where is he? Next verse, Kail the mama daka. In a gentle, even silent voice, tamama. Tamama can be considered, can be, can be low, but tamama really means silent. A silent, gentle voice. A subtle, gentle voice, a subtle, silent voice. Many different ways to translate. But why is it so silent? Why can't it be loud like 
the wind, the thunder, the lightning, because they're things that are the deepest things are expressed in very quiet expressions. The louder something is, may have a lot of power, what we call the power of revelations, the power of giluim, the power of expression. But the deepest things in life are very quiet. The most intimate part of a person does not make a lot of noise. Noisemakers are usually a sign of more external celebrations. It has its place and sometimes has its value. But the deepest part of a person is silence. If you look at someone who's yelling and screaming and making a whole scene and a racket, and look at another person who's sitting quietly in a corner, meditating, contemplating, tell me which one is really louder. So if you're talking about purely decibels, of course, the one that the yelling is louder. But if you're talking about intensity, quality, it's often the quiet person who's traveling internally in very deep places. So noise sometimes has its value, but it's not necessarily reflective of the deepest experiences. When people truly love each other, they don't need to yell and scream. They don't need to be loud. They don't even need to speak. A hug, a touch, an embrace can be more powerful than all sounds in the world. Again, I'm not making away sound has its value. In the temple, the Levites honored God and served God with song. They were composers. And the priests served in silence. And the Zohar, the classic book of Jewish mysticism, asks, and which is greater, serving in silence or serving in sound? Most people would say sound. It's louder, music, beautiful. No, sound is deeper because sound is so profound it can't be even expressed in a sound itself. Sound itself is like a container. As I explained many times, when you ask people to talk about, let's say, superficial things, the weather, sports, politics, Trump, on and on and on and on and on. Endless. Just start to turn on any radio, turn on a television, you'll see. So when they ask you to speak about yourself, tell me something about yourself. But people fall silent. Not because they don't trust. You could say, you know what? Superficial things. I don't care to talk about. You know, it doesn't affect me. You talk about myself. I'm vulnerable. I'm not interested in talking. But even with people we trust, you don't find a lot of words to talk about yourself. But yourself is so close to you. Tell me what your deepest concerns are. Tell me the deepest loves you have, the deepest passions. Again, I'm not talking about if there's shame or embarrassment. Even if there isn't. Why is that so difficult to express? I'll tell you why. Because words are containers. And sounds are containers. And containers have parameters. You can only put a quart of liquid in a, in, a, in a cup. That's a quart. You can't put more or else it'll spill over. Words are containers. Limited containers are good for limited expressions. Superficial things, a lot of words. But when you get to something a little deeper, you'll see regular conventional language is not good enough. That's why we create the language called metaphor. Poetry. Metaphor. A metaphor is more, a little more subtle, a lot more subtle. Is, uh, it, it alludes to things. It's not so tangible and therefore can express a deeper feeling because its containers are wider. Then comes something even less than a metaphor, which is even a metaphor can capture sometimes it's so deep the feeling, the only thing you could say is, ah, or oy vey. Why, why nothing more? Because 
It's so intense, words themselves can't contain it. And someone say to you, tell me what you're feeling. You say, I can't even express it. It's so deep, I can't express it. It could be great joy, it could be great pain. And then there's a point where there's a color delayishtama, a voice that has no sound. It's so profound, you can't even cry. You can't even laugh. Because even that's more than, that's, its intensity is so strong that even that container is too small for it. The sound of silence. Silence sometimes can be much deeper and more profound than all the sounds in the world. But we need to train ourselves to think this way because we live in a world that values expression, values noise, fireworks. You know, if you don't see fireworks, drive down, go to Times Square and look. You see the, 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 the glittery, what are they called? Um, neon lights. And it's loud. And sometimes gorgeous even. That's what people like. A lot of a, a sound and light show. Actually, when the Torah was given, it was a sound and light show. Kalis of Rokim and lights, and they saw sounds and light. Yom Kippur, when the second tablets were given, utter silence. The silence of humility. Because even though sounds have value, you know, you do something with pomp and circumstance, it's very valuable and precious, so you make a parade. But parades also have a sense of creating a little arrogance and they'll take them for granted. You can sometimes be not so humble because you, sometimes you have to celebrate in silence. Yom Kippur, when Moses comes down with the second tablets, quiet. You go into a synagogue in Yom Kippur. So there are times they sing and their prayers are said out loud, but the deepest prayers are the quiet ones. The ones you say to yourself, to God, in a hush. Because that silence has in it much more power than all the sounds of the world. So in that sense, that sense, a moment of silence, captures, captures the, the, the essence of the person much deeper than any form of sound and expression. So obviously, and this is really another topic which I've talked about other times, which is the concept of bridging the world of sound and the world of soundlessness. In other words, expressing the inexpressible. But you can't get there. First, you have to experience the inexpressible. And sadly, in our day and age, because of the inundation and the overstimulation of our senses, we are losing the art of silence. You know, most people can't even, are very uncomfortable with silence. You know, they say you, you meet somebody in the street and they don't know how to be quiet. They're usually a thief because they can't deal with the awkwardness of silence. People who are very comfortable in their own skin have no problem being silent. But someone who's like they say that they have, in Yiddish, that someone that feels always self-conscious because they did something wrong, you'll always see they're always talking because they like protect themselves with talk. They think the talking like is a smokescreen and you won't really pick, catch, on, catch on. But there are people that can sit hours in silence. They can look at you and stare at you with silence and they're not awkward about it. Those are people who are very comfortable in their own inner self. But we live in a world where noise is the dominant force. If you don't make noise, if you're not getting people's attention, it means you have nothing to say. It's sad. Sometimes the people have the most to say are the ones that are the, si- the quietest people. But this goes down back to what I was saying earlier. It's very easy to make a lot of noise and, uh, and so-called cover your tracks and distract yourself and others because of your noise. And that type of comfort, that's a very mysterious, uh, hmm? 
You think somebody came in? That's invisible, huh? Somebody in dark, silent. Yes, yeah, something silent walked in. Yeah. So, I've seen some people in my life, the, the ability, the mastery they had of silence really demonstrated it was a very profound power. You know, there's also this, the power of silence. Uh, you could ask any uh, husband about when he gets a silent treatment from his wife, is it worse than um, when, he, when, he, when she yells at him? Um, but the bottom line is that that's a different discussion. I'm not, I just thought about it when you walked in. Is silence worse than sound? I think it is. Because at least sound, you know what's on the person's mind. The silence is, can kill you because um, the question is whether women know that they have that power. What do you think? Huh? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Men also can give silent treatment. That's true. That's true. But I think a woman's silence is more... Um, more aggressive. <laughs> More deafening, yeah. So, I'm talking here the positive side of things. Maybe that's also sometimes positive. As I said from the Zohar, that the, king, the, the, the priest's silence, that they served in silence, was deeper than the Levites, the Levim's service in song. That doesn't mean song has value. Of course, that doesn't mean that song has no value. Obviously, song is a tremendous force, and I've talked about a number of times how song is actually this language of the soul. And, uh, but in song itself, you have songs, and the song can sometimes be a very subtle one. As I said, koil demamo daka, which is no question much more powerful than the ruach, the rash, and the esh, meaning the wind, the blowing winds, and the, the thunder, and the lightning, which as strong as they are, they don't have the power of the silent, gentle voice. So when you really want to know what is the natural state of a human being, the natural state is the koyled mamadaka. It's the silent state. You see children. Children don't begin to speak right away. That's not an accident. You know, when they start speaking, it's also a miracle. Two years old, three years old, whatever age. It's also pretty amazing to see how quickly they begin to speak. But there's a certain truth to their silence because they're like closer to the truth when you're in a silent place. And you're most comfortable in that. The soul's most comfortable place is silence. I mean, you have expression even about God. You say, that he established darkness for his hiding place. And the question is asked, why darkness? Why can't it be light? Because, because light is expression. Anything that's expression, with all its value, it's still going to be defined by the expression. In other words, if you have a particular strength, that's beautiful, but your strength is only going to be limited to the parameters of your capacities. Whereas, if you want to really see someone beyond capacity, you have to go to a place of non-expression. And that has, in a sense, a deep depth that you don't find in expression. Say, siyog l'chach mishtika, which means the support... Huh? The sign of a wise person or, the, or even the, the, is, a, is silence. Why silence? You'd think a wise person should be much more expressed than what he says now, or she says than what he doesn't say. How do you know the difference between someone that's smart and someone that's not smart? Not, not in their silence. Silence, you can, convince, you can convince in silence everybody's equal. And yet it says that wisdom is seen in silence more than in sound. You know? Um, and the yeshiva they used to tell us the joke was that why is the, why is the Mishnah, why is the statement made and tells us the secret of wisdom is silence. Now stupid, pe- stupid people 
can go around masquerading as smart people by being quiet. They'll never know. You'll think, oh, wow, this person must be very smart because they're quiet. So one of our master teachers told us it doesn't work that way. Someone that has no intelligence, even if you tell them the secret, they still can't control themselves. They're going to speak. Even if you tell them that, because that's, that's the nature of the beast. And you have these stories of uh, these, uh, I don't know who they say about, I'm not sure which Rebbe they say about. They used to very, very rarely speak. And after a while, the Hasidim and his followers came to the Gabbai, came to his assistant and said, you know, does this Rebbe really have anything to say? You know, which Rebbe they say this about? Sure, they have to tell different stories. You know, maybe he has nothing to say. And, you know, he's just sitting quietly and we all think he's some genius. He's not saying anything. So the Rebbe, so he came to the Rebbe and said to him, you know, the Hasidim are starting to wonder. So he says, listen, this way they're in doubt whether I have something to say or not. If I start speaking, they'll know for sure I have nothing to say. That was his response. So it's a pretty sign of a wise person. When the, the Gera Rebbe, the Beis Yisrael, came the first time to Israel, so he met the Rabbi Kuk, Rav Kuk was the chief rabbi. And Rav Kuk asked him, there's an expression in the Talmud that says, Avira Deretz Yisrael Machim. The environment of Israel makes you smarter. So he asked him, since he came to Israel, does he feel smarter? So the Beis Yisrael answered, he said, Siyag which means that the sign of smartness is to be quiet. The point of, however, bottom line is like this. Why is the case? Because, yes, it's true that a wise person speaking, you'll understand and see his wisdom. But that's not where the true wisdom is. If you look at excellent teachers and the smartest people of all, you look back at what they taught, you'll see what they, the restraint that they exercise is even stronger than what they teach, what they don't say between the lines, like telling the student just enough but not more. They reveal one inch, but they hide two. That, in that you'll see far greater wisdom. Like Winston Churchill said, he once wrote a long letter to a friend, and he said, I apologize, I didn't have time to write a shorter letter. You know, to, to say a lot, yes, you have to have wisdom to say a lot. You know, a stupid person can't say much. But you have, you have to have even greater wisdom to say it in short. Because that means you know how to limited how to concentrate it, how to focus, and also not to overwhelm, just to pour it on more and more and more. It can be self-indulgence as well, and it's not about necessarily wisdom. True wisdom is to say exactly, not more, not more than necessary, not less than necessary. So where do you see the wisdom? You see it sometimes in the white space. Like if you look at a page, it's not just the letters are in black ink. But the white space is much more than the black ink. Why? Because if you don't have the white space, you can never read ink. So the key in design, ask any designer, is going to be much more the white space than the actual images. Because you can have beautiful images, but if the spacing isn't good, the thing will overwhelm people and they won't be able to look at it properly. So it's not just always what you see is also what you don't see. It's just as powerful and maybe more powerful. So in that sense, when you begin your day, your moment with silence, you're really, what you're doing is introducing into your life something that's greater than you and greater than any stimulation and really gives you the power to focus and concentrate on that which is beyond expression. That's really what it comes down to. If we taught this to our children in schools, guaranteed, and, and taught it with the, with the same foundational elements of the sanctity of life, in general, the concept of sanctity, the concept of life is more than just me and you, it doesn't begin with yourself, it doesn't end with you, 
This is where you teach people how to be refined people and guaranteed they'll be less prone to violence and less prone to killing and so on. Is this a perfect, absolute guarantee? Of course not. You know, we live in a world that has many different challenges, but is, I would suggest is probably the deepest root of issues as opposed to symptoms. But again, we live in a world that everything is superficial. You see a problem, what's the fix, quick fix? And people do not think about the longer term because that's the type of world we live in. People don't have this patience and attention span. How many people have told me in my life that more, and it always, it's only accelerating, they say, listen, I don't have time for several months of work on myself. Give me two, three steps I got to do, and that's what I'm looking for. You know, so I say, I always tell them, well, you better go find somebody else because I just, uh, I'm just a slow learning myself and I can't really do things that fast. But that's what people want. They want quick fixes. Everything's moving fast. Amazon's now able to deliver within an hour. And they don't want to wait more than an hour. And that's it. It doesn't matter whether it's a package of this. Same thing as... I, I, talk about a world of noises. There we go. I understand. Aren't you impressed that I'm a New Yorker and I even hear the sirens? Most New Yorkers don't even hear it. It's like just uh, the natural sounds. So, so it's like the same thing. People want everything quick. They want love quickly. They want uh, truth quickly. They want everything quickly. But if you look around, you tell me, I challenge anyone to show me one thing that's lasting and valuable and precious in life that comes quickly. Nothing. You plant a seed in the ground, and it doesn't matter how impatient you are, it's going to grow at its pace. And if you try to pull the flower out, with your hand, it's not going to work. You'll destroy it. Everything is a process and emerges. The real things in life. Superficial things, material things don't work that way because a material thing is man-made. A man-made thing. You know what? I could press a button and I have it. But anything that's real and has some truth to it is always going to be part of a process. You may, you may be expecting you want to have a child. Yeah, but there's going to be nine months in pregnancy. Sometimes a child can be born a little earlier, but you want nine months, full nine months. That's, what, that's how it works. You want love in life. Love is just like a seed. You plant it, you water it, you nurture it, you do the right things, you weed it, you get rid of the weeds, and it emerges. These truths are so simple, but it becomes very increasingly difficult to embrace because everything around us is not working that way. You look around... And, you know, not in any way talking negatively about technology, because technology has its qualities. But technology can spoil us into thinking, the press of a button, you get it. So why can't I get everything that way? And you become spoiled, and it becomes harder to experience that type of silence. This is part of the, I guess, I guess the social psychology of our times that is uh, constantly eroding, because it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Because if you don't have that foundation... And all these forces are shaping and whatever comes your way stimulates you. That's what you do. What do you think happens? At some point, you're just an addict to stimulation. And you need more stimulation. It's very difficult as time passes to get rid of this habit because you become addicted to the stimulation. Whatever the stimulation is. And you become overstimulated and then you need more stimulation. And then someone says, can you experience a little silence for, let's say, a half hour? Shut down your phone. No texts. Know nothing. Most people find it very difficult, extremely difficult. They'll start saying, why should I? Why not? It's so convenient. There are people waiting and this and this and this. 
And most people don't even realize that, it, uh, that uh, they say, you know, what's the problem? The problem is that you're probably a person that's not able to be silent with anybody. If your child comes to you and says, you know, I want to talk to you, do you have a half hour for them that you can really dedicate? Or you're impatient and can't wait till the half hour is over? Which means basically you can't give attention to anyone you care about. So how could that be healthy? But again, most people don't even see this as unhealthy. They say, okay, fine, that's one of the things I've got to work on. That's what most people say. The fact of the matter is that the essential soul of a human being thrives in silence. It thrives, and I say silence, I don't mean there's no words. I mean in calm, in serenity, where there's no hyperstimulation. So in that sense, you look at, for example, uh, the Talmud. The Talmud. The Talmud is the classic work of Jewish scholarship, liter- literature, law, Jewish law. The Talmud. Every page, in the, every book of the Talmud, the tractate of the Talmud, begins on which page? So most books start on page one, right? No, Talmud starts page bay, two. Bez Amr Aleph is always two A. There's no such thing as one A or one B in a Talmud. The question is why? Why didn't they start with one? Like what happened to page one? So page one is usually the Sharblat, which means the cover page. I think that some books maybe also go with that custom, but they don't necessarily understand the reason why, you know. I mean, some forwards have Roman numerals, and then they begin with the actual numbers. But the reason for it is the same reason that the greatest compliment you can give to somebody in, in, the, in the Jewish world is not chachem. To say someone's smart is sometimes you say a person is a chachem, usually it means a little cynically and sarcastically, he, you know, he's a chachem, he thinks he's a smart aleck. The greatest compliment you give to someone is Talmud Chacham. Talmud Chacham, which means the student of a wise person or the student of wisdom. The greatest, the greatest. Even if he's no longer a student, he's the greatest teacher. You're still Talmud Chacham is always the name. Why? Because Reshis Chachma Yiras Hashem. The beginning of all wisdom is not wisdom. It's silence. It's a pause. It's space. It's a one page one is not words. It's not ideas. Is that before all ideas begin, there's a certain axiom that wisdom sits on the foundation of truth. You're not looking to understand, you're looking for the truth. And that's very different. It's one thing people say, I understand it. Another thing is that the idea resonates. The idea, like, um, our, one of my mashpim, one of my teachers Hasidic teachers when I was in yeshiva used to tell us the difference between chachma and bina. Chachma and bina is the two Hebrew words for conceiving an idea and understanding an idea. I would say that the difference is, he said in Yiddish, I'll say it in Yiddish for the Yiddish-speaking audience, he said that the chachma, the inyan nem de mensch, and the bina de mensch nem de minyan. It's a translated, loosely translated that in Chachman, true, the purest form of wisdom, the idea takes you. And in understanding, you take the idea. I understand the idea, or the idea has captured you. And it's not as some semantics. One is the idea is more important than you are. And the other one, you're more important than the idea. And this is why you can find people who are brilliant, but arrogant. In their brilliance, they're arrogant, because it's about them. The integrity is missing. So they may be brilliant, but you will not find the humility is lacking. So you could say, who cares about humility? Humility is a nice virtue. What does it have to do with wisdom? It could be, you know. So you have in the Talmud, 
in Erevin, it talks about the classic two scholars and sages who, Shammai and Hillel, who disagreed in a very serious way about things. They both had the same teachers, Shammai and Naftalian, but this one, Shammai, was more stringent and found a more strict interpretation, and Hillel found a more lenient interpretation. And their schools, Beis Shammai and Beis Hal, the, the, the academy of Shammai would follow this teacher, the stricter approach, and Hillel's students and academy would follow his. Until the day came where, even though both were legitimate, and they had each their own school, they, they followed their teacher's guidelines. But then the, the reason came the point where wanted to establish what is the consensus, what is the ruling, the halacha, what is the legal ruling that everybody has to follow. And from heaven it was, it was announced that, the one, that Hillel is the one that we follow in final analysis, even though Shammai has good arguments. Why? Because Hillel was a humbler, humble man. Shammai was humble too, but he was more humble. And how do we know this? Because when he would present his arguments, he would first present the arguments of his adversary and then of his own which was a sign. Usually people present their argument, and then they say, by the way, there's another little opinion going on, but, you know, it's not as important as mine. Hillel would do the opposite. He would present Shammai's argument in full glory, and then he would present his. So, beautiful. So the question is asked, that's a great virtue, humility, but what does it have to do with wisdom? He should get a medal for humility. What does it have to do with wisdom? Wisdom is the, the brighter person, the smarter one, the better arguments, the one that brings better proofs, the more articulate one, whatever. That's the signs of wisdom. And the answer is quite obvious as well, because humility brings integrity. And when there's integrity, you can trust the wisdom. If you know someone's brilliant, but you know they're arrogant, you also say to yourself, you know what, maybe they're biased. And their arrogance won't let them see it, and they won't be able to admit a mistake, and they won't be able to acknowledge that maybe there's another way to look at it. When someone's humble, besides their intelligence, you know they also have a silence. They're ready to listen. They're ready to say, you know what, there's another way to look at it. So it's not just another nice virtue. Moses was also. Moses was the man of God, the man of Torah, the person who was the person chosen to give over the Torah. And yet, the greatest quality he said is the humblest man that ever walked on earth. Because wisdom without trust is what? You can have a lot of wisdom, but if you don't trust that wisdom, or you don't trust the person that's teaching that wisdom, it's, it can be quite uh, devastating because smart people can actually make the smartest mistakes as well, meaning the biggest ones because they're smart, and they can create the greatest distortions, and, not, and even better than that, they know how to cover their tracks and defend themselves that you can't even figure out because they're so brilliant. So, Reish is Chachmir Hashem, we want wisdom. First thing before wisdom comes a humility. Now some may say, okay, this sounds like a very nice religious idea, but what does it have to do with really a secular world? Well, you know something? Even though Freud may be the one that coined the word subconscious or unconscious, but long before Freud, there's an expression in Kabbalistic teachings coming from the Zohar, and the Arizal, Isaac Luria, elaborates on it in his Eitz Chaim. It's called the hidden wisdom. I like to translate it superconsciousness. 
Why? Because unconscious or subconscious suggests a subterranean level. Like, you know, you have a building, the floors, and you have a basement. Subconscious sounds like sub. It's underneath. The truth is, it's supra. It's, it, it's above, beyond. First comes superconscious, then comes conscious. So when an idea falls into your head, where does it come from? You know, so some people, I once asked somebody, he said to me, it comes from the shower head. Because whenever I'm in the shower, ideas flow. So I must come from this, from the, like where the, the water comes out of the shower head, and so do ideas. It's a good thought, because that's true. A lot of ideas come in the shower. But the problem with that is not all ideas come from the shower. What do you do then? You know? Um, so where do ideas come from? And how do you explain an idea? You have a, a dilemma. You're struggling with it, maybe for months, maybe for days, maybe for hours. And suddenly, flash, you have an epiphany. And that moment is always a very exciting moment, right? You know, when you have something, especially you struggle with, and suddenly, solution. It's not even a developed solution. Just an idea comes to you. This, and it's compared to a flash. A flash of an idea. You know, a light bulb. A lightning. That's how it's called. In Hebrew, Baruch HaMavrik. Avrakus HaSeichel. It means like a lightning flash. Which is exactly like that. It's a flash and then it disappears. Now we get thousands of such ideas fall into our minds every day, but we forget most of them. The ones that we retain are the ones that either we write down or we develop or we talk about and so on. So, so when you think of it, it's like a flash. That, a flash means it's a light. Where did that spark come from? And that's exactly the language that the Kabbalists and then the Hasidic masters develop, how that spark a spark means it came from a bigger flame. Sparks don't come from nowhere. They come from a flame. But you know, no one can see the flame, so all you can see is the spark of the flame. That flame is called superconscious. Called collective unconscious, some people call it. Different words for it. It's basically, think of it like a reservoir of ideas, but they're not yet conscious ideas. And from there, sparks emerge. Or think of it like a faucet. A faucet, you turn on the faucet, drops of water come out. But they're coming from a place, a reservoir that has a lot more than just drops. And then comes the second stage where you develop that, and that's called Rechevus Hanar, Bina, which is understanding it's wide like a river. But rivers don't come from nowhere. Rivers all have a, a source. A river is not its own source. A river comes from a spring of water or from another body of water that ultimately leads you to a spring of water. The spring of water is very small. The spring of water can be a crack in a stone coming from the depths of the earth, a little spring. But it's alive and it's like sparks. A river can be extremely wide and an ocean even wider, but they are the expansion of it, not the... So which one is more powerful? The silence of Chachma or the expression of Bina? Bina is the place where there's a lot of noise. We even say Simcha, joy, celebration. Celebration can be quiet. When you celebrate, according to you have to have other people with you. That's why we have guests in the holidays. We make weddings and we make celebrate. We invite people. Tainug, on the other hand, pleasure, you can sit alone and learn something and have profound pleasure because one comes from Chachma, one comes from Bina. So a lot of noise, Bina. Levim come from Bina and Kahanim come from Chachma. Levites who sang song, beautiful, that's expression. But the spark which is much more concentrated and much more silent because it doesn't have a lot of words. It's just, it's just a spark. That's ser the service they do in silence.
So when you think of it that way, the higher you go, the more quiet things are. The further out you go, the more loud they are. And that's the twisted paradox, because we live in a world of expression. So we value a lot of noise. We value things that are very expressive, very expansive. And we don't really value things that are quiet or silent or don't have all the acriments and the... When you think of the high priest going in Yom Kippur into the Holy of Holies, complete silence for a few minutes on a silent day, dressed in white. Everything is plain. Other days of the, the, other days of the year, the, the priests wore colorful garments. The priestly garments had colors and all this. White is, just like, white is the color of silence, just like sound. Silence of sound, in the world of sound is silence, and the world of color is white. And that's how you'll find simplicity. But simplicity is not simple at all. Simplicity simply means that it is shapeless, because it's beyond shape, not because it's below shape. It's above shape. So shape, form, expression, these are all manifestations as opposed to the core essence of things. This part of life is the thing that we need most in our day and age. Because our day and age is so noisy. And I mean noisy, I don't just mean sound. I mean also stimulation, overstimulation. It's so overpowering that today the only thing we can, the only antidote to that, you know, it's one time, maybe hundreds of years ago, didn't have all the technologies we have today. So it was easier to hold on to your own inner core because you weren't so distracted and seduced. Today, it's like, like, it's like being at a stormy ocean and you have no anchor. So what do you think is going to happen? People are dragged all directions. It's very hard to hold on to a core essence. And that's why the power of the moment of silence is so powerful, both for our children and for adults, for all of us, because it means you dedicate time each day <coughs> to a time where you're focusing on the inner instead of the outer, on the purpose of it all, where it all originates from. On page one, before you get to page two, is a blank page. It's a silent page. But in that silence lies more power than all the pages that come afterwards. And then they do come afterwards. We want page two and page three. No one's suggesting you live in the foundation. We have to have a building with floors, and you have to have, and it's important to have beauty in your life, and important to have expression, and by all means, sing songs and all that. But imagine the song that comes from a person who knows how to be silent. Far greater than a song of a person who doesn't know how to be quiet. And it's an interesting exercise to be able to sometimes exercise that restraint and say, you know, I'm going to look inward. The soul is essentially really a silent force. It's not loud. soul doesn't make a lot of noise. That's why it doesn't get our attention too much. It doesn't make noise, but it's there. It silently ticks away inside of us and it, it's the force that causes us, causes us to have restlessness and because it's seeking um, nourishment but it's nourishment can't come from anything that's materialistic because the soul by definition is not material you can't feed it with food and with drink and water you have to feed it with love with giving with things that are ethereal with things that are transcendent in nature so however you turn it Moment of silence and the idea of silence is a tremendous, maybe maybe one of the best kept secrets and necessary. If we were able to master that, it's not that difficult. It's just really designating time each day 
whether it's at school or at home, or in any, in any environment, and just making sure. You know, today they call it mindfulness. Mindfulness is yeah, another fad. I don't know how long it's going to last. But again, it's a fad. So they almost take the power of silence and turn it into another uh, entertainment, almost. Not entertainment, another... And which, again, d- d- that lasts until the next uh, fad. But it has elements, like many things that are existent even in contemporary culture, has elements of truths, which is the concept of meditation, creating space. They talk about creating space. You have to create space. Creating space is this idea. But it really goes back, as I said, maybe the, the simple tradition we have of saying moda'ani in the morning, though, it's, as I said, it is a prayer, it has words, but the words are really almost visible words. The words are about recognizing that you have a soul that was returned to you. So you're basically expressing that you have something invisible inside of you that drives who you are and drives your day and drives all your activities. And then I go back to the other extreme, even in society, not only on our own personal level of inner peace and inner focus, the idea of, of uh, talking about violence in schools and, um, and, uh, and stuff like that, the shootings, the recent shootings, and you see all the pundits, everyone's talking about everything from gun control to mental illness to arming, you know, the only way, way to fight guns is with guns, you know, all that type of thing. Uh, you have the NRA and then the anti-NRAs and the whole... At this point, you get cynical because the whole thing sounds political at some point and very little focus on what about the souls of our children? What are they being taught? What's the value of life? How sacred is life today? And that's something that's not addressed. I have not seen, I've not watched everything, but I've not seen many people write about it. For some people, they're afraid to go there because you're starting getting into the so-called the areas of faith and religion and God, and that's like taboo. That's even more taboo than guns, I guess. What was that cartoon going around where a student says to God, why don't you come and protect us in the schools? And God says, they don't let me into the schools. Because in this country, God's not allowed in the schools. So fine, not God, but a moment of silence. Which is why, as I mentioned earlier, my own teacher mentor used to talk about this a lot, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, about how a moment of silence is the foundation teaching children that you're accountable to something. You're not just accountable to yourself. And explaining how it's not a violation of constitutional separation of church and state, because a silent moment of silence, you can do whatever you want. If you want, you can sleep. You're not telling people what they should think about. But you're giving students and you're giving teachers and parents the opportunity (coughs) to tell their children, you go to school. Take five minutes, take two minutes, take one minute to think that you are answerable to a higher power that you were sent to this world. The world is not yours. You come to discover truths. The truth is not... Is, is, you don't own the truth. You come to experience truth. And on and on, different ways that this can be expressed. And yes, it is a tremendous tool, both at home and school, to teach children this message. It might sound small, but you do it every day. Like drops of water, you give people the foundation. You have, we have people today, brilliant, brilliant students, who are going to build tremendous businesses, have already built businesses. They're creative, they're innovative, they're, they have uh, mastery of different skills and so on. But one thing that many of them have never been taught is the page one of wisdom. They know page two and on, page one. And they may even be humble people by nature. But that idea that all this knowledge, for what? What do we have knowledge for? 
So most people say, I have no problem saying knowledge is, is power and knowledge is to make money. I have more knowledge and more smartness, I can make more money. What does that say? That means that the, the end, the means is the end. The end has become the means. When in truth, knowledge is a tool. It's like a tool chest. What do you use the tools for? Is to fulfill the calling of your life, a higher calling, where there's that accountability, where there's that sanctity, where there's that sense of purpose and focus. So, in that sense, a little silent moment like that can have more power than all the words that we will hear the rest of our lives. And with that, I will bid everyone a very silent and loud good evening and good week and blessed week. Uh, we're here every Wednesday. Next few weeks I'll do some, since we're getting closer to Passover, talk about some transcendent Passover ideas. And um, we're here on uh, Facebook, on YouTube, Instagram. Not today? Once in a while. Okay. So please um, share, like, uh, comment. Good. I said share. Again? Share again. Okay. All the other things that we do with each other on the social media networks. And um, may you all be blessed with the ability to be quiet at times. Quietude. A peaceful center right here where you're at peace with yourself without any stimulation. You're just comfortable in your own skin. God bless you all. Everyone have a blessed week. I'll see you next week. Thank you.